0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Check Down Charlie's podcast. As always, I'm your host, Eric, and I am joined by Theo. What is going on, Theo?
1: Nothing. Oh, well, I always say nothing, but usually it's something. <laughs> and I just like throw it in the back of my head. Really just, uh, you know, hanging out uh, beginning of the summer. It hasn't actually felt like summer for us in, uh, in Canada, but... No, I can't complain because there's no snow outside.
0: Absolutely, I mean, in in Scotland, it's kind of the same thing, except the sun stays up till about ten thirty at night. So I don't even know what freaking time it is right now because it looks exactly the same as it did at four p.m. So 30. Yeah, yeah. Like the like- the sun will literally set. Well, because it's you know ju- we're recording this on June twentieth, right? So tomorrow's the longest day of the year, and I swear. It'll be up until past 10 o'clock.
1: I know that you guys are like basically as far north as like Sweden. And they practice like midsummer, which is like the summer solstice, right? Like everyone's watched that creepy ass horror movie Midsummer, I that
0: movie so much.
1: (laughs) I know. It's so weird. (laughs) But essentially it's like the summer solstice festival. So I guess it's Mm. like it makes sense that you guys see light until 1030. At night, but that's kind of crazy. I don't know if I would be able to sleep properly.
0: You do what you can. We have dark curtains in the bedroom, so uh, that does a decent enough job. But yeah, just gotta get on with it, man. And the, here's the thing: is if you're in Scotland, either you complain about the rain or you complain about the sun. So either way, you're complaining about something. But what I'm not complaining about is today's episode of the Checkdown Charlie's podcast, which will cover arguably the most famous. NFL squad, or the most famous NFL achievement of all time in the 1972 Miami Dolphins. What do you think?
1: Uh, Yes. And may I commend you for your award-winning segue? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) The 72 Dolphins, you know, the only team to have gone undefeated. And as we know from the previous season, the only other team that was close to doing so was the 2007 New England Patriots. Mm -hmm. And our very favorite Giants ended up causing an upset in the Super Bowl.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely, they did. So all of you haven't heard season one, go back and listen to that one. It's uh, one of the greatest uh, memories of my lifetime. And I'm sure we'll be describing somebody else's favorite memory in terms of football when we're talking about the 1972 season. So without further ado, the 1972 season started differently from all the other ones. The Dolphins had gone from being a young, plucky, and inexperienced bunch of players to Super Bowl contenders in a matter of two seasons under Don Shula. To use the old sports cliche, the Dolphins now had a target on their backs, going from the hunters to the hunted in the NFL landscape. It was up to Shula to set the tone early for the 72 season, and he did so in typical fashion. He addressed his team at the beginning of the season, quote, We won 10 games in each of the past two years. In 1970, we went to the first round of the AFC playoffs. Last year, we won the AFC title and made it all the way to the Super Bowl. How many of you guys thought last year was a success? So, none of you? That's good, because last year wasn't a success. There's only one thing that counts in professional football and that is winning the Super Bowl. The rest of it means nothing absolutely nothing. If you don't win the Super Bowl, you're nothing but an also-ran, just like the team that finishes in last place. Well, this year will be different. This year will be successful. By that, gentlemen, I mean that we will win the Super Bowl.
1: First team activity on the schedule for the 1972 season was to rewatch footage of their loss in the Super Bowl. We were called bums all off season because we lost the Super Bowl. Running back Mercury Morris recalls a quote from Shula. See how sick and sorry you feel now? Now think of how sick and sorry you're going to be if you don't go back and redeem yourselves for what you did last year. Shula made sure that the players carried a chip on each of their shoulders going into the year. We all knew why we were there, to get back to the Super Bowl and win it. They started off the season in Kansas City for a rematch of the 1971 AFC playoff game against the Chiefs, which would be the first ever game played at Arrowhead Stadium. While the previous match was played on Christmas Day in the cold, this game was played in sweltering heat. It was apparently so hot that day that the ink from the Dolphins game plan was leaking onto Don Shula's white shirt. Total contrast in today's game where Shula's wearing a, a crisp, you probably starched white shirt uh-huh. and like the pen ink from his game plan is just like in his front pocket. And it's <laughs> probably just like seeping through and like contrasted that with uh 2020 Bill Belichick with his uh Darth Vader hoodie and laminated play sheet it's yeah it's a totally different world
0: or was it uh Chip Kelly that had like Rocky Balboa or like Rambo on his play sheet as he was like covering his mouth trying not to get his lips red
1: totally yeah so after a, a tough fought first half guard Larry Little led the team in a sprint their positions to start the second half, while a dehydrated and tired Chiefs squad looked on. Suddenly, the four-day practices in the Miami Sun without water proved to be advantageous. There was a method to Shula's madness. They would go on to win 20-10, to proving that last year's victory was no fluke. Mike Freeman tells a story of Chiefs wide receiver Otis Taylor, who grew so frustrated with Miami's tight coverage that he threw a punch at linebacker Doug Swift. What Taylor forgot was that Swift had his helmet on, along with a cage face mask. Taylor broke his hand and was ejected from the game, further adding to the Chiefs misery.
0: Miami started to pile up victories against fierce competition. They racked up 274 yards on the ground in week two against the Houston Oilers on an astroturf surface that destroyed many careers. Then came a come from behind victory against Fran Tarkenton and the Minnesota Vikings in week three. The Dolphins' potent rushing attack was stopped by the Vikings, so Bob Greasy and wide receiver Howard Twilley would combine for two touchdowns. Greasy eventually hit tight end Jim Mandich in the end zone for the game-winning score off a of play action. Larry Zonka recalls that their unity and unselfishness allowed them to succeed. Quote, the great thing about the 72 team was that we didn't really care whose number was called. If they called me on a 119, the tight end delay, they did it because they believed the defense would suck up on it and Mandich would come open. He came wide open. Also, <laughs> vaguely sexually explicit analogies for football, but you get
1: the point. I assume that was not the intention, but anyways, no. The Dolphins would go on to face Joe Namath and the New York Jets in week four. And what was described as the man versus the machine, at this point. The Machine Miami Dolphins were the only undefeated team in the league. Larry Zonka had 102 from the ground, and Jim Kick had two touchdowns in a Dolphins victory that featured a goal-line stand against the Jets in the fourth quarter.
0: Now at 4-0, the Dolphins were cruising along comfortably into a Week 5 matchup with the San Diego Chargers when disaster struck. On a seemingly ordinary play, Bob Greasy rolled out to find that all of his options downfield were covered. As he was going to throw the ball to his check down option, running back Jim Kick, Ron East and Deacon Jones, who was the inventor of the term sacking the QB, tackled Bob Greasy, who ended up breaking his leg and dislocating his ankle on the play. Shula would say after the game, quote, I looked around for a convenient place to throw up. Greasy described his situation to the media more plainly, quote, I don't know how bad it was, but I knew right away I wasn't going to be playing any more football for the rest of the day. In a cruel twist of fate, Greasy was forced from the game with a similar injury to the one which John Stofa suffered in 1967, which gave Greasy his chance to become the starter in the first place. In to replace Greasy was 38-year-old Earl Morrill. Morrill was no stranger to this kind of situation, having come in for an injured Johnny Unitas on many occasions. Morrill started his career as a journeyman until being coached by Shula in Baltimore. There, he was able to hone his craft and become a great quarterback. He led the Baltimore Colts to Super Bowl III, which was a loss to the underdog New York Jets. Morrill, who was the league MVP at that point, crumbled on the big stage, throwing several interceptions before eventually being pulled for a hobbled Unitas. Shula's decision not to pull Morrill until it was too late was heavily criticized by the Baltimore media and by
1: Carol Rosenblum. After a retooling of the Colts roster prior to 1972, Morrill was released. The Dolphins actually claimed Morrill off waivers for $100, and the team paid his $85,000 salary upon Shula's insistence. Moral was seen as the elder statesman on a young and -and up-and-coming Dolphins team. Some of the younger players had styled his locker to have an arthritis clinic sign right above his name and left a rocking chair nearby in case he needed a breather. Before coming into the game against the Chargers, defensive end Bill Stanfill had some words of encouragement for him. Okay old man, get those cataracts in motion, turn up your hearing aid and let's go. Which is hilarious i love these sort of stories in the locker room you know just like hazing yeah but just like put this in context he's two years older than aaron Rodgers.
0: <laughs> and how many years younger than tom brady at this point
1: well tom brady's turning 45 so yeah seven years oh my god. younger than tom brady oh my god right? Back then, right, they weren't on the avocado milkshake diet. It was more like the chips and cigarette diet. So,
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) A 38-year-old looked quite old at that point, right? Yeah, a
0: 1970s 38-year-old is like a 20, 20, 52-year-old, you know?
1: Yeah, without, you know, trying to defend anybody that (laughs) grew up in that era. (laughs) It pretty much is. Yeah. So, Moral had a steady demeanor and turned out to be a calming influence on the team. He said of the injury, Bob Greasy was a nice guy. He broke his ankle so I could play. I know he's saying that tongue-in-cheek. That reminds me of like something Eli Manning would say. It's like yeah. sort of like quick-witted dry humor. Running back Mercury Morris recalls that Morrill was playing in the league when he was 10 years old. Now, Morrill was starting alongside Morris, who was 25 years old at the time. Much like Tom Brady and his teammates, essentially. I love how like the more Brady plays... We just always talk about how old so-and-so on his team was when he uh-huh. first won a Super Bowl. You, like, see those memes every so often. Yeah. It's just, like, it's so interesting how, like, throughout this generation, he's just, like, stretched what the standard was. Like, he's just passed it.
0: My favorite thing, most memorable thing is the uh, Antoine Winfield. Like, he played against Antoine Winfield Sr., And now plays with Antoine Winfield Jr. Like he's still the QB of the team. It's unbelievable. But yeah, that's what moral was for these people. He's a a legend, man. They brought him in and uh, his experience seems to have paid off for them.
1: Exactly. Like a real culture guy for Shula. Some might make the comparison with another and more contemporary former Dolphin, Ryan Fitzpatrick. On the Colts, Shula employed a similar hot hand system to Brian Flores. Switching between Unitas and Moral on several occasions.
0: I think that was probably the closest comparison that I could think of in the modern NFL. And, you know, you see it obviously out of necessity on the Dolphins because Greasy goes down with a pretty horrific injury, to be honest. There was a lot of switching between Unitas and Moral. So Moral already had that experience of coming in and running Shula's offense, which turned out to be pretty invaluable to them. I feel like what Brian Flores did with Tua and Ryan Fitzpatrick is probably the closest thing. What do you think?
1: I think that's the closest it'll get to in the modern game just because Brian Flores's approach was essentially whatever it takes to win the game. And he's been criticized for this, which is like making the quarterback as comfortable as possible. And it doesn't happen at all these days and like it's more likely to happen in college football right where they switch back and forth between the quarterback but I think in the 1970s people have to remember it's more acceptable because the amount of rushing attempts versus passing attempts a little teaser when we get into the 80s this still is in play for Shula before Marino he has two quarterbacks uh, David Woodley and Don Strzok and they're sort of like polar opposites in terms of play styles One's more of a running quarterback, and the other one's more of a traditional pocket passer. And he actually switches between both, depending on the style of game that they're going to play.
0: Obviously, we'll, we'll cover that more later. But this is to say that Shula's not afraid to switch things up if he sees fit. Despite having to hold their blocks a little while longer for the aging quarterback, the members of the Expendables offensive line were unfazed by the change of signal caller his prior knowledge of Shula's system was a huge advantage. Morrill was able to calmly execute Shula's game plan and completed touchdowns to Howard Twilley and Paul Warfield to lead Miami to victory against the Chargers. Greasy's injury served as a wake-up call to other areas of the team to pick up the slack and do their part to aid their team to victory. The transition from Morrill to Greasy wasn't as smooth in the following week as they faced the Buffalo Bills. Morrill would throw two interceptions before halftime, and Jim Kick would fumble the ball to put the Bills in a position to end Miami's streak. However, Manny Fernandez would come up with a huge play by stealing a handoff from Bills quarterback Mike Taliaferro and taking it back inside the red zone before stumbling short of the end zone. Referencing his bad vision, Fernandez would joke after the game that he stumbled because he was afraid that he was going to run into a goalpost.
1: Next up for the Finns was a trip to Baltimore to face Shula and Morrill's old team, the Colts. Before the game, Johnny Unitas exchanged a few words with his former understudy. You're getting too old for this, aren't you? Unitas joked. Well, you're a pretty old buck yourself, Morrill shot back. Clearly, Shula and Morrow were on a mission to stick it to their old team as Unitas was benched in a 23 to nothing victory by Miami. Earl Morrow was given the game ball and had this to say to the media after the game. I think they felt sorry for the old quarterback. It could have gone to a dozen other guys. I'm just happy they came back here and won with me at quarterback. This is the 10th time I've been in the visitor's locker room, and I spent four years over in the other one. It's tough to look across the line and see all the other guys you know so well. But you also know they'd like to kick the hell out of you every play.
0: It must have been really satisfying for Don Shula and Earl Morrill to come back, not only beat their former team, following the embarrassment of losing to the Jets, but not only do you do that, you come in there and you blank them, 23 to nothing, with basically their old backup.
1: Steamrolling them, and they're already undefeated up until this point. Like, yeah, I'd say... As much as moral satisfied with the victory, mm-hmm. I think even more so with Shula because like both teams are on separate plateaus, mm-hmm. and it just like further sticks it to Rosenblum, who was like so catty towards the end of Shula's career with the Baltimore Colts.
0: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, this is where they kind of announce themselves as a force to be reckoned with. Like it doesn't even matter who's starting at QB. You know, they're just going to execute and they're going to outwork you and be disciplined and beat you no matter what
1: and to shula's credit he's steamrolling him with a quarterback that they considered dispensable
0: they released him they paid 100 bucks and got him off the street you know and now he comes into your building and he blanks you 23 to nothing like that's some sweet revenge if i've ever heard of it exactly the next week was another showdown with the bills The running back that we would know on the Bills is OJ Simpson, and OJ Simpson had this to say about the Dolphins going into the 1972 season. Quote, teams worried about Zonka, Jim Kick, Greasy. They had some star power. I liked how Mercury ran. Going into the year, we thought the Dolphins were a good team, but no one was scared of them. Most people I knew in the league thought them making the Super Bowl was a fluke. They didn't buy them as a great team. I did buy into Zonka, end quote. The Bills gave Miami some trouble in week six, but this time it wasn't close. The Dolphins' defense held star running back OJ Simpson to 45 yards on the ground as Miami won the game comfortably. To top it all off, tight end Marv Fleming found a $10 bill in the end zone and kept it. Mike Freeman goes on to tell that a Greyhound at a Miami racetrack that was named after safety Jake Scott Won three races in a row that weekend. Human Jake Scott was there to witness K9 Jake's third victory and even made some money by placing a bet on the outcome of the race.
1: Which is probably a suspendable fine this time. I mean, there's in the gotta NFL. be a
0: there's gotta be a statute of limitations on this stuff. I mean,
1: we're talking fifty years ago, you know? I know. I'm just saying, like, like compare that to Ridley now, who gets a year suspension because he, he bet on a couple of games while he was injured. <laughs> So things were looking up for our protagonists at this point. Clearly, the absence of Bob Greasy meant that other parts of the team were stepping up to pick up the slack. Let's get further into the groups that made the Miami Dolphins squad so special. According to Greek mythology, a hydra is a nine-headed serpentine water creature. Without getting too deep into the story, its distinguishing feature is when you cut off one head, two more appear in its place. When Bob Greasy went down, it was time for the Miami Dolphins' offensive hydra to kick into gear. This meant that the offensive backfield of Larry Zonka, Jim Kick, and Mercury Morris would pick up the slack. This three-headed monster was already a force behind the Expendables, but now would be asked to shoulder more of the load for the offense. The most famous member of this backfield was Larry Zonka. We will definitely dedicate an entire episode to this Hall of Famer, so suffice it to say that he was the battering ram of the offense. Zonka was known for being an aggressive run, coming in at around 6'3". 237 pounds. He would bring the pain to opposing tacklers. There was one play where Larry Zonka stiff-armed a Colts defender on the sideline. The defender was down for a long time while being attended to by the medical staff. Don Jewel recalls this as one of the only times an offensive player was called for unnecessary roughness against a defender instead of being the other way around. Quote, Two bodies can occupy the same position at the same time, as long as one's bigger and faster, and going the opposite direction, they're there at the same time, but the little one gets out of the way.
0: The yin to Zonka's yang was another runner by the name of Jim Kick. Kick was known for being a more versatile runner out of the backfield, particularly in passing situations. Kick had nimble feet and was a violent runner in space, often drawing comparisons to do-it-all giant star Frank Gifford. The two would form a formidable backfield duo for the Dolphins' methodical offense under Shula. According to an earlier quote from Bob Greasy, the offense was monotonous. It was boring. We just marched through everybody and scored.
1: I looked it up, Eric. Jim kick was actually only 5'11 and 214 pounds. But he was, like, very versatile in the passing game. Right. So in his first four years, he averaged over a 1,000 yards combined rushing and receiving. So he would rush about 600 yards and pass for about 400 yards. So hmm. contrast that with uh, Larry Zonko, who was, like, 6'3", and 240, right? It was a great combination because they were so different. They could attack opposing defenses in multiple ways.
0: You see a lot of that being employed in the modern NFL as well. Like different backs will play different roles on teams now. You know, there are very, very few three down running backs in the NFL in today's game. You know, usually mm-hmm. you would have somebody who's more of a runner between the tackles, which in this case would be more of a Larry Zonka. And then you might have somebody that would come in on second and long, third down situations, which would have been Jim Kick at the time, who can block, who can catch the ball out of the backfield, you know, be that outlet, that check down, check down Charlie's. So, yeah, you can see the forward thinking of Don Shula tactically, even. In this relatively early stages of the NFL as we know it today.
1: Yeah, he was very adaptable. With regards to our two running backs in question, starting in the late 60s, the two would come to dominate touches out of the backfield for Miami, developing a bond as teammates and friends. The media took to calling them Butch and Sundance after the 1969 Western movie, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which starred Robert Redford. The duo would even pose for a set of pictures in that style for several magazines and publications. The nickname also stemmed from Zonka and Kick holding out before the 1971 season for new contracts. In order to avoid the press, they would go work out together in the park, which made them wanted men in the eyes of reporters. The two of them were inseparable. According to a New York Times article in 1976, they negotiated their Dolphins contracts together had the same agent, and did a book together called Always on the Run, Zonka, who grew up on an Ohio farm, taught Kick how to fish. A quote from Zonka. Last week, I got Jim's mother and father and brother Billy tickets to the Redskins game. And you would also say, his mother made me cookies on two occasions, and Billy ate them both times. Jim Kick would even say of Zonka, Zonk is just like family.
0: All of this is to say that the two were the best of friends. So when Eugene Mercury Morris joined the Dolphins in 1969, the rookie was more of an afterthought in the offense than anything else, backing up kick at halfback while Zonka dominated in his role as fullback. Mercury was never afraid to voice his opinion, especially when it came to what kind of music was playing in the locker room. There was a dispute between Morris's choice of Power Jam 99 and country music from Bob Kuchenberg. Kuchenberg alleges that he threw Morris's ghetto blaster out the window, but Morris laughs it off as being a myth. Wide receiver Howard Twilley would also chime in with his own musical choices, preferring the country station over all else. Mercury Morris notably did not have a touch in the Dolphins' 1971 loss to the Cowboys in Super Bowl VI and he was frustrated about being underutilized. A reporter came up to Mercury after the game and asked him what was wrong. Morris told the reporter that the only time he was off the bench aside from the kickoffs was during the National Anthem. According to Undefeated, Morris could be seen kicking over tables in the locker room after the Dolphins lost. Shula was understandably upset that Morris would go to the media instead of voicing his concerns directly and after a one-on-one meeting after Super Bowl six, Morris and Shula would reach an understanding. Before the 1972 season, Morris never had more than 60 carries in a single year, but in 1972, Morris's role in the offense was steadily increasing. His open field agility and quickness allowed him to make defenders miss, leading to big splash plays in the running game. A somewhat modern-day comparison would be the former Chiefs running back Jamal Charles, a versatile runner who could run between the tackles as well as burn you with speed and quickness that was difficult to rival
1: in that area. According to Shula, Kick had great hands coming out of the backfield, was never going to fumble, and could get into the end zone in goal line situations. Mercury could get to the outside and had the ability to move quickly in space. Shula would say, I wanted Kick in there in certain situations. I wanted Mercury in there in certain situations and I wanted Zonka in there all the time. There were some instances where Kick 5'11 would be put in to block for a 6'3 Larry Zonka. Kick was quoted as saying, I had many, many discussions with Coach Shula, arguing, I don't understand why a guy at 215 is blocking for a guy at 240. He gave me a dirty look and said, just get back in there. Kick describes himself as being the most opposed to Shula's coaching style and having a problem with authority. As a result, Shula would tolerate more humor from Zonka because he knew he was more serious about the game preparation. Hick says, Zonk was his boy. I used to tell Shula all the time, no wonder you love Zonk. You're both Hungarian, you're both from Ohio, and you're both ugly.
0: I love that line. While Zonka was known as a physical runner, Jim Kick took the approach to work smarter, not harder. Kick would describe his own running style as such. I like to run where there are holes, and Larry likes to run where there are people. Kick would explain his style in a 1972 article in Sports Illustrated, I've always been what you might call lackadaisical. It makes for a bad appearance. For example, I hate exercise. I hate sit-ups. Larry thrives on hard work. Raised on a farm, up at 5.30 milking cows, getting the work done. I was lazy, or looked lazy. Shula yells at me for the way I do exercises. I just like to loosen up. I don't worry much about form. I don't knock myself out on the unnecessary stuff. Why run back to the huddle? Conserve your energy. Pick your spots. He added, quote, I'm not a student of anything. I stopped growing mentally at 17. I know absolutely nothing about football. I don't know how to read a defense. I'm always afraid they'll quiz me on something I'm supposed to know, end quote.
1: I guess this is probably why they were such good friends because they were polar opposites, right? Mm -hmm. It's funny because someone like that could honestly rub Shula the wrong way, but I feel like because there was such a stable of running backs and Kick's job was always on the line, they basically had the culture or like the foundation to support a running back like him.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was clear his ability was there, right? But clearly what Shula wanted was to be a drill sergeant and wanted essentially soldiers that would do his bidding in a way. Or like he was the general that would kind of command the troops, whereas Jim Kick was kind of, wasn't really, like, like he said, he was lackadaisical, right? Like he could still do what you asked him to do. He just wouldn't be super willing to do it. We all know people like that, and that's not to say that they can't get the job done. But again, as you'll see, when Mercury Morris comes in, first person to kind of cede territory in this case is Jim Kick, whether that's due to a lack of ability or due to his attitude on the field, that's up to you guys to decide.
1: Exactly. And as we alluded to, Kick's approach was sometimes a direct contradiction of what Shula expected of him as a player. Kick once called the team curfew childish, like we have to be on a leash. During Shula's 12 minute runs, he said that he didn't sign up for track and field. Shula started to notice when Kick would stop two thirds through the run and warned Kick that Mercury Morris was waiting in the wings behind him. At first, Kick thought Shula must have been bluffing, but the coach was all too serious. At this point, we're not aware if Kick knew about the conversation between Morris and Shula had after Super Bowl 6. Morris's increase in playing time came at the expense of Jim Kick, who'd eventually had taken a backseat role to Morris at halfback. Morris's increased involvement initially came as quite a shock to the dynamic duo. Quote, In the beginning, I would sit in between them to kind of let them know this is how we're going to roll here, said Mercury Morris. Kick's perceived lack of effort and Merck's passion to be on the field made it the perfect storm for the trio to form. Quote, Merck wanted to play all the time. I wanted to play all the time. But if I was content about not playing all the time, I don't think I'd be the ball player that I was, said Jim Kick.
0: Kick was then later asked about what he thought about his reducing playing time in favor of the more explosive Mercury Morris. Quote, it's easy to get depressed, he said, but winning sure soothes things over. I'm fortunate. I've had my chances to play. Some guys are in a position where they never have a chance. I tried to look at it from a positive angle. Maybe it'll help prolong my career. I never say I should be playing. That would be downgrading Mercury, and I'm never going to do that. He's too good of a football player. Now, Yipremian is another matter. When premien starts running with the football, I've got to say, I'm better than he is. And Gary, your Yipremian is the kicker of the Dolphins. Eventually, those guys were able to put their differences aside for the good of the squad. Larry Zonka, started to realize that the three-headed monster approach was working in their favor and zonka would say later quote, we never sat down and said this is what we got to do we just said hey we don't give a rat's ass if it'll keep the old man off our backs and we can win
1: we'll do it in 1972 larry zonka rushed for 1117 yards and mercury morris ran for an even 1000 making them the first ever duo to run for 1,000 yards each in a season. Jim Kick added 700 yards from scrimmage and 10 TDs of his own. This three-headed monster would more than do their part to keep the Dolphins afloat, despite the injury to their star quarterback.
0: No show about the 1972 Dolphins, or any football team for that matter, would be complete without mentioning their defense. Don Shula got his start on the defensive side of the ball, playing in the 1950s as a defensive back for the Cleveland Browns and Washington, respectively. When he transitioned into coaching, it was on the defensive side of the ball under George Wilson and the Detroit Lions. Our astute listeners will remember him from the first episode. The defense included a group called the Fearsome Foursome, Roger Brown, Alex Karras, and defensive end Darius McCord and Sam Williams. All of this is to say, that Shula put his stamp on the team on the defensive side of the ball. The Dolphins' defensive coordinator at the time was a man by the name of Bill Arnsparger. This gruff, chain-smoking coach would be the driving force behind the invention of what was called the 53 defense. The defensive scheme revolved around number 53, linebacker Bob Matheson, who would switch between playing as a defensive end with his hand in the ground, rushing the passer, and as a linebacker, helping out in coverage, stopping the run, and blitzing the quarterback from all angles. The Dolphins actually traded for Matheson after an injury to star linebacker Nick Buonaconte during the 1971 season. Again, according to Mike Freeman, Arnsparger and Matheson met at a restaurant and went over the scheme for hours. And Matheson liked what he heard.
1: So Arnst took his college defensive scheme and adapted it to the pros to great success. He's also credited as being one of the first coaches to implement situational substitutions on defense, moving players around and putting them in better positions to succeed. Although there have been many tweaks and iterations of this defense throughout the years, the 53 defense is considered as one of those first versions of what we call a 3-4 defense today. Three down linemen, and four linebackers. Mm -hmm. Many offenses had not seen this kind of defense before, as they were more used to the 4-3 scheme that was invented by Tom Landry, who we mentioned in our previous series when we covered the New York Giants. Mm -hmm. Freeman described the scheme as such. Arnsbarger would change the defense drastically by shifting to a 5-2 alignment. Defender over center, defenders over both offensive tackles, and four linebackers. Matheson would rush the quarterback. It was ingenious, and nothing like it had really been seen before. This combined with good zone defense meant that opposing offenses needed to take what the defense was giving them in small chunks rather than big plays through the air or on the ground. Matheson would either blitz or stay in zone coverage, meaning that offenses needed to be safe and keep extra people in protection as opposed to letting them run routes downfield.
0: Revolutionary scheme aside, the Miami Dolphins were branded the no-name defense. The team got the name, or lack thereof, from a quote by Tom Landry, given to a Dallas newspaper sometime between the 1971 and 72 seasons. Quote, It's only four months since the Super Bowl, but I can't remember the names of the Miami front line. There were some members of the 1971 Cowboys squad that referred to them as Buonaconte and the other guys. This was a textbook definition of bulletin board material, and the Dolphins and media alike took the nickname and ran with it. After their week four victory against the Jets, in which they had a goal line stand to deny New York in the fourth quarter, Nick Bonaconti declared to the media, quote, We're the no-name defense and we're proud of it. Nobody has been able to give us a nickname. We love it that way. We enjoy being anonymous.
1: The players even posed for a magazine cover wearing the masks from the Lone Ranger with the headline, Who are these masked men? Luckily for you listeners, we're going to try and uncover some of the many faces that made up this stalwart defensive Dolphin squad. So we will pause the recording today, and we will get back to you in the next episode, continuing on from this 1972 season. Thank you all for listening.
0: Thanks for listening to the Checkdown Charlie's podcast. Check
1: us out on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean.
0: Don't forget to follow us at CheckDCharlies on Twitter and at CheckDownCharlies on Instagram.
1: Like, comment, and subscribe on all platforms. And don't forget to leave us a review. Until
0: next time, thanks for tuning in.